Hello, I'm Garni Barkajarian of the Pacific Neuroscience Institute and CNS member for more than 10 years. What I love most about being a member is access to cutting edge science and the opportunities that have advanced my career. I've also gained new colleagues and lifelong friends. Being a CNS member has been so rewarding. The value of membership cannot be defined by a number. Join me and the over 10,000 neurosurgeons who are making a difference in the world. Visit cns.org slash membership podcast today. All right. Well, welcome everyone to the Controversies in Neurosurgery podcast. Um, we're uh, today discussing the controversy, which is the use of uh, endoscopic techniques, including endoscopic third ventriculostomy or chorea plexus fulguration. Um, and our guest today is uh, Dr. Michael DeKuyper, who's um, uh, a physician, attending physician at uh, Lurie Children's in Chicago, and he's an assistant professor at uh, Northwestern. Did his training at the University of Tennessee, as well as look like some fellowship training, correct, in uh, in Australia. I think I saw as well. Uh, and we're joined today by our co-host, uh, Dr. Rashna Ali. Um, so welcome, uh, Dr. Kuiper and, and Rashna. Welcome. It's great to be here again. Yeah, thanks, guys. Uh, appreciate the the opportunity to be here today. Yeah, and so um, just to get started, there, um, Dr. Kuiper, um, can you tell us just a little bit, maybe just for our listeners who are uninitiated, you know, maybe just start with the basics of kind of, you know, the endoscopic techniques we're going to talk about today, in particular, the ones that you do like endoscopic third ventriculostomy. And certainly there's been a uh, interest in the use of uh, uh, fulguration of the core plexus for uh, management of uh, particularly pediatric hydrocephalus. And, and um, you know, maybe you can kind of get a start with a little bit of description of those and, and maybe how, how they fit in your practice. Sure. So, um, I, I'm a pediatric neurosurgeon, uh, and I treat hydrocephalus quite frequently, uh, unfortunately. Um, and so, um, I do a lot of endoscopic third ventriculostomies because, uh, to me, it's a very valuable tool in my armamentarium against hydrocephalus. Um, there has been some, um, interest in chord plexus cauterization or fulguration, whichever term you prefer, as an idea, as an adjunct to an endoscopic third ventriculostomy to improve the uh, success rate of endoscopic third ventriculostomy. Um, obviously, endoscopic third ventriculostomy is uh, the idea that making a stoma or a hole in the bottom of the third ventricle uh, allowing CSF to escape into the prepontine and spinal subarachnoid space um, can alleviate hydrocephalus and allow for uh, physiologic CSF reabsorption. And then, as I mentioned, the idea of cauterizing the chord plexus or destroying the chord plexus would aid in the success, ideally, I guess, by decreasing CSF production uh, in children or in any patient that you might do that. I guess that she'd go with, and maybe I, I assume it goes without saying most of our listeners probably understand this, but these are all alternatives to, to, to traditional shunting. Yeah. Correct. Yeah. Obviously, uh, a, a ventricular peritoneal shunt is the most common way that we treat hydrocephalus. Uh, but I do think, um, especially over the last maybe decade or so, there's been a, um, 
been greater interest in ETVs as as an adjunct or or an option to a shunt. And um, as a pediatric neurosurgeon who sees, you know, multiple shunts every single day that I'm on call, come through the ER, um, I, I'm def I definitely fall on the side of, of ETV and and I tend to, you know, consider ETV a, a great option. Um, I think in general, you know, shunts can be a very necessary thing in a lot of patients, but I consider a shunt a, a sort of a, a sentence, if you will. Um, and by that, I really mean that it is, a, it is a device that we put in someone to divert CSF, and it really becomes a lifelong um you know, burden in a lot of ways, you know, every time a child comes to the ED with a headache or vomiting or literally anything, they're going to get a scan of their head uh, to check their shunt and neurosurgery is going to get a call. And um, parents at home, especially with a young child, every time they throw up, every time they say their head hurts in the back of their mind, they're wondering, is it the shunt? I don't know. And there's so many families that travel hours and wait in ERs for hours, um, worried about a shunt. And we admit kids every single day for shunt observations. Um, in the, in the certainly, instances- Certainly someone who's already had a shunt failure, then that you know, that worry just goes up, right? Exactly. Yeah. And some kids have multiple failures every year, right? Like uh, there's there such a wide range of presentations and, you know, uh, malfunctions that it just can really become a, a, a quite a burden on on families, in my opinion. So uh, I tend to be very uh, aggressive, so to speak, in ETVs and op offering ETVs to patients that I see. And so when, well, when, when, when do you think, oh, go ahead, Russian, sorry. Oh, I think we were probably both going to ask the same question. So, you know, what is your algorithm when it comes to ETV versus shunting in these uh, children with hydrocephalus? Do you take the fact that they're communicating versus non-communicating into, into the mix? Um, are there other patient-related uh, factors or certain anatomical factors that help your decision-making to sway you in one way or the other? Sure. So, you know, I find that the ETV success score is hard to beat. Um, I, I find my numbers fall pretty much exactly at the v ETV success score at about six months. So, um, I, I rely on that heavily, and I really offer ETV to pretty much every scenario that I encounter, with a few exceptions. And those really, number one, are post-infectious, uh, because I think that's an end-line result, so CSF absorption problem. No amount of ETV or anything else that you do, I think, is really going to solve that. And so if I have a patient that has a post-infectious hydrocephalus, I have a very low, um, you know, success and confidence in an ETV in that scenario. And so those patients, I, I would probably just go to a shunt. I don't know if you, if I would even offer those because I know, I know it's probably going to fail. The EV to, ETV success score is very low for those patients. Mm -hmm. But beyond that, um, with the, maybe with the exception of like a, like a brain tumor with diffuse leptomeningeal disease, mm -hmm. similar scenario, I think, to mm -hmm. an infectious process where the CNS just can't absorb the CSF properly. I'll offer it to pretty much anyone else. And mm -hmm. as a good example, I see a lot of uh, 
post-hemorrhagic hydrocephalus in, in infants. And most of those most of those children fall at about the 30 to 40% ETV success score. And you can look at that two different ways, in my opinion, depending on if you're a sort of a pessimist or an optimist. Is it glass half empty or glass half full? You know, for me, if I if my child has a 30 to 40% chance of shunt independence, yeah. I'm probably going to go for that and say there's a one in three chance that my child will not need a shunt. Hmm. And if you do the ETV and it doesn't work, all that really does is it, okay, fine, I'm buying another surgery where I'm putting a shunt in. But I think the morbidity profile of an ETV is such that why not? Yeah. I'll take that. I'll take those odds. That, that's better odds than you'll find in any casino <laughs> or lottery or or pretty much any other you know gambling establishment. So uh, I, I'll take those odds. But beyond that, you know, like I said, maybe infection is the number one that I that I pretty much say. You know what? You're going to need a shunt. Let's just cut to the chase and do it. And would you mind just reminding us, either our listeners or two functional neurosurgeons like myself and Rush, the components of the ETV success score? Um, so really, the, the the main components of the ETV success score are the age of the patient, the etiology of the hydrocephalus, and whether they've had a shunt in the past or not. Mm -hmm. And you know, the etiology can be a little uh, gray zone, maybe, so to speak. Um, I, as I mentioned before, I think infection is really the most important of those etiologies. But uh, etiologies such as uh, aqueductal stenosis are really made for an ETV, right. so to speak. Um, but the age-wise, we really notice a cutoff at about the six-month of age time frame. So you do get some extra points or, or, you know, percentage points for success after six months of age. Um, it's not a ton, but I think it does matter. Nevertheless, you know, I'll, I'll still attempt, you know, I'll still offer ETV to uh, one, two month old, you know, eight week old patient uh, in an effort to avoid a shunt. Is there a difference in those young patients in terms of the difficulty of the procedure or anything like that? Um, you know, I don't personally notice it. Um, uh, I, I like a flexible endoscope uh, as my go-to. So it's a small endoscope. Um, it's about the size of a, or the diameter of an external ventriculostomy drain. So I find it's pretty safe and um, very uh, mobile and I, I can get in a lot of small places with it. Um, so no, I really don't notice any, any significant difference based on age uh, or like risk profile in that regard. Oh, and speaking of um, intraventricular drains, uh, is it common practice for you to leave an EVDN um, after you've done a third ventriculostomy just to ensure that it's uh, it's going to do the trick for these uh, kids, particularly if there's concern for acute hydrocephalus? Um, so I do not, unless, unless of course, you, you have some bleeding and you want to get blood out of the ventricles. That's about the only case that I would leave an ET, uh, leave a, a, a drain or even an OMIA. Uh, because I, in my opinion, the point of an ETV is to have no hardware in your body. And I know it, it's very common practice to leave an Omaya as sort of a safety valve. And I think there's nothing wrong with that at all. But in my practice and in my experience, I've found that you don't end up using them very often. And if a patient comes to the ER with an Omaya and a ventricular catheter, they still think it's a shunt and they're still going to get scanned. 
and neurosurgery is still going to get called. So I, I, yeah, if I do an ETV, I don't leave any hardware whatsoever, you know, unless I get it, there's a hemorrhage, which is rare that I want to get blood out of the ventricular system. And then, you know, I want to give a little bit of time, you know, the other part of you know our topic here is about, you know, kind of, you know, the, the coagulation, fulguration of the choroid plexus. And maybe you can tell us a little bit more about that. You know, I, I understand that's not done as commonly and, you know, definitely has some interest in why someone might think about doing that. And you sort of, you know, tell, tell us your thoughts on all of that. Sure. So I have a lot of thoughts on that, uh, actually. Um, and I'll start by saying, um, you know, the HCRN or the Hydrocephalus Clinical Research Network has done a lot of work uh, on, uh, you know, CPC or choroid plexus cauterization as an idea of an adjunct to increase the success of the ETV procedure alone. And unfortunately, they have not been able to demonstrate, even in the US, you know, on multi center studies, that the addition of choroid plexus cauterization adds to the success of ETV alone. And we really could stop the conversation right there, right? And say they did a prospective study and there was no difference between ETV and ETV CPC period. Now, we are neurosurgeons and uh, you know, it's to me it's classic neurosurgery to say, "Oh wait, it's probably just that that surgeon isn't as good as I am and their and their technique isn't as good as mine." And my success will clearly be better than another surgeon's. Well, the HCRN actually did another study looking at, um, you know, education and experience with the CPC procedure across several sites. And they also couldn't detect a difference in training or experience or even amount of cord plexus cauterization. Because theoretically, you would need to cauterize 90% of the cord plexus within the ventricular system to achieve success. So there's been a lot of, of, of prospective work done on, in this regard. Um, now, all of that is to say that you assume that you know or we understand CSF physiology um, at a modern level. And I can personally tell you, I don't think most people do uh, because the idea that the choroid plexus produces the majority of the CSF in the nervous system is an idea that was developed by Walter Dandy and Harvey Cushing about 100 years ago. Uh, and there's a very classic experiment where uh, Walter Dandy, um, you know, uh, performed a surgery in a dog, N equals one, uh, where they removed the choroid plexus on one side, you know, somehow occluded the foramina of Monroe and noted that the contralateral ventricle increased in size and therefore the core plexus was the site of CSF production, the, the eight, up to 80%, someone says. Hmm. And I think if you are uh, someone who is interested in CSF physiology and you read research, you realize that um, we have a lot of very good modern data to show that this, the cord plexus is not actually the major site of CSF production in the nervous system. And if you know that information, I don't really understand why you would think that CPC is going to work. Hmm. Um, because I think, you know, there's good data to show that CSF is created and reabsorbed throughout the nervous system, including the spinal canal. Hmm. And so... 
I guess at the end of the day, I am not surprised at all that CPC doesn't work. Um, another important thing I, I think that every surgeon should really take into account is um, in that prospective study by the HCRN, the average procedural time for an ETV and CPC procedure was 107 minutes plus or minus 40 minutes. So anywhere from like, say, an hour to two and a half hours uh, to perform. And, I, and it's a long, it's not, you know, if you've ever done a CPC, yeah. it's not a quick, easy, risk-free procedure. So not only are you, are you adding some risk of, you know, the, the procedure in general, the time is significantly longer. Uh, because, I mean, I can do an ETV skin to skin and say 30 to 40 minutes on a good day. Um, adding another hour and a half to that, you know, seems like a lot of time and additional risk and anesthesia, et cetera, to a procedure that if you really think about the modern idea of CSF physiology is really has no basis for uh, it, it, its uh, its use, if that makes sense. Yeah, that's really interesting. Uh, yeah, I, I, I don't know if you have any kind of sense. Uh, my, my impression that certainly there's significant from doing other surgeries around the quarry plexus, you know, the, the quarry plexus is not something you necessarily want to trifle with if you don't have to. And so certainly that that risk is, is higher. And uh, obviously you're kind of introducing a lot more uh, protein and other things into the spinal fluid while you're doing that also, obviously. Right. Yeah. In my experience, there's always quite large vessels living right under the quarry plexus, you know, those, those arteries that feed the quarry plexus. And yeah, it's not an easy procedure to do. Um, and, you know, working through a flex, especially a flexible endoscope, because I think most of the people who do ETV CPC use a flexible endoscope for a variety of reasons. And it's a very small working channel, about a millimeter in diameter. Um, you, you don't have any kind of bimanual technique available through that small endoscope and even irrigation through the flexible endoscope is not easy and so um you know I, in my mind there's really no reason to even attempt a cpc from either a, a surgical standpoint or a physiological standpoint it just doesn't make a lot of sense to me interesting uh, well, that that's pretty clear. <laughs> I was going to say, I was just going to ask you if there's any time where you you would think about it, but it sounds like not really. You know, I I think I think the data the data speaks for itself. It really does. I I feel like if if it really did work, we would know by now because I think there are a lot of talented surgeons out there who do a very thorough cord plexus cauterization, and they they still can't beat the ETV success score. If you can beat the ETV success score, fair enough. But I think we're all, which I think is the best data we have. I think we're all kind of bound by it. Um, and I think there's a lot of just good data um, to show that the cord plexus, while it may participate in CSF production, it is by far not the major site. And the idea that, you know, CSF, the, the CSF pathway is, is a linear pathway, meaning that it's produced by the cord plexus. It, flows unidirectionally through the ventricles and is reabsorbed through the arachnoid granulations and vasculature is just an old and antiquated idea um, in science. And I think if you look in, if you dig into the literature, you'll find very good data to show that that's not the case. Like, for example, there's good animal data to show that in animals who have had all of their choroid plexus reabsorbed, the CSF still absorbs water quite readily throughout the nervous system. Mm. Uh, and so 
I don't know. I just, I, again, I just have a hard time, like based on the evidence we have of like the justification of this procedure um, and where, where it clearly doesn't work and we have clinical data to support it. Um, I just ask, what about in initial ETV failures? Would you reattempt uh, to, to redo an ETV and perhaps at that point consider a CPC or you don't think even in ETV failures uh, there, there's any role of it? And would you rather just proceed to shunting if, if that were the case? Um, so that's a very great point. I, you know, happens to me a lot, right? Like if you if you do an ETV in a baby with post-hemorrhagic hydrocephalus, you're only about a at best a 40% chance of success. So I do a lot of, of shunts in, in babies. And what I typically do is I will put a scope back in and look at my stoma. If my stoma's open, then I will just put a shunt in. If the stoma has closed, then I will reattempt uh, uh, an ETV because I do think, you know, babies' brains heal really well, and there are occasions where the stoma will close up on you. Um, if it's still open, then, in my opinion, it's an absorptive problem, and you're not going to overcome that, and you should just put a shunt in and, and walk away. I, I still feel the exact same about CPC. I don't think it really adds anything. I had one question, probably the only time I've ever thought about doing it in an adult, if, if someone had an entrapped ventricle, like, a, you know, kind of you know, one horn of a ventricle that was entrapped where I think maybe most of the CSF is coming from the, the cord plexus, would you ever think about it then or even then not so much? Yeah. You know, uh, the main driver of CSF production is really osmotic gradients and, mm -hmm. and even hydrostatic gradients. And I think the phenomenon within a trapped ventricle is that CSF isn't able to circulate through the brain and then mm -hmm. and the CSF or, or the CNS. And so what happens is that CSF becomes concentrated and it actually draws water into it. Right. So no, even in those circumstances, I wouldn't. I, I am very aggressive though with uh, endoscopic fenestration of trapped ventricles in order to communicate that ventricle with the rest of the CSF, even in the sense if I can just simplify a shunt system, because there obviously are kids who need a shunt and it's not going to change. But if they have a trapped ventricle or a loculated ventricle, if I can have one catheter, that is the, the victory there. And so I try to fenestrate and communicate as many spaces as possible if, if that's an option. I recognize that I mispronounced your name at the beginning. No, no worries. <laughs> tell us, no worries. Why don't you tell us, like, how, do you, how do you pronounce it? Uh, Decipher is sort of the the way uh, I guess my family has decided to say it for the for in the Americas I guess. And and so um, you know I, 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 that that's you know I'm sure we could dive into a lot of that but just kind of in the interest of time I, I think we can kind of move on but uh, you know I, I guess I was going to ask um, um, in terms of you know obviously you're you're doing kind of tumors or at least tumor biopsies through kind of endoscopes are, are you doing ETVs at the same time for for those cases. Um, I do, especially in the case of like a pineal region tumor or say an, uh, a tectoglioma where there is clear obstruction of the cerebral aqueduct, I always do an ETV. Uh, and so, uh, yeah, I, I do. I, li I love the flexible endoscope for that procedure because I can do a single approach, say that, you know, the classic pre-coronal burr hole, uh, you can do the ETV and the biopsy. Uh, without navigation most of the time and without um, a, a separate approach with the flexible scope. So yeah, it's a, for those indications, it's a big part of my practice. Nice. Um, 
I guess um, because this is the controversies podcast, <laughs> how much, how much, how much is what what you said about kind of um, the understanding of CSF production and absorption? Is that pretty well established at this, this point in pediatric nurses? Is that still a pretty controversial statement? What you made, would you say? Um, well, I guess it depends on the teaching within neurosurgery and 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 sort of within uh, um, uh, you know how you're trained and where you go. I will say there's a great uh, review article that was published in the Red Journal or or uh, uh, neurosurgery uh, in 2022 by Travis Ashley at uh, University of Alabama Birmingham that reviews the current state of what we know about CSF physiology. And um, it, it's really, it's also a call, I think, for neurosurgeons and medical schools to really update our teachings on CSF physiology. Um, and um, I recommend this article to lots of people because I think it's a great review of the actual science uh, and the ideas uh, that we've developed over the past hundred years since Walter Dandy and Cushing really did those first experiments. And we've come a long way. And I really do believe it's it's time we update the what we teach medical students and residents about CSF physiology. Yeah. So right. while our audience, uh, you know, looks that paper up uh, to, to read it in detail, just like I'm sure Steph and I will. Uh, if, if you had to pick sort of the one top main mind-bending physiological fact that kind of changed your understanding of how you understood CSF dynamics, like the biggest myth buster that you, that you found in that paper, what, what would that be? I, I think it's the idea that the chorid plexus is the main generator of CSF, right? Uh, really what happens is the capillaries throughout the nervous system allow water to go across in an osmotic and a hydrostatic fashion. And if you if you understand that and, and believe that from a scientific level, I think the rest, especially in the, in the setting of the idea of core plexus cauterization becomes like obsolete. Like, why would you even try that? You, you can't eliminate water entering the CSF uh, or, or, the, or the CNS across the entire nervous system. Um, and even if, let's say, let's give the chorid plexus uh, the benefit of the doubt. Let's say it's even 50% or 40% of the, you're still not going to cure their hydrocephalus, right? If there's an, if, if that's the problem, if there's an absorptive problem. So, um, you know, that, I think that's really it. It's like that we, we were relying on really outdated information and, and physiological ideas about the way the nervous system works from a, from a CSF standpoint, um, is really the take home, I think, of, of the science that's happened in the last, say, 50 years. Well, that's really interesting. And I, I certainly learned something from our conversation. Um, well, we're actually surprisingly, as, as usual, we're at, at time um, faster than we would have expected. Um, did you have any other questions you were thinking of, Preston, before we uh, call it a day? Uh, no, I think this was a great conversation. And uh, maybe we should ex uh, invite more non functional people to our podcast as we we end up learning more uh through the process well well thank you very much dr decipher and uh um for everyone listening uh, please do check out all our other podcasts cns.org um and uh thanks for listening